0: So those of you who have, who have received the handout know the topic of my talk before I've even announced it. So the mischievous part of me wants to change the topic. <laughs> but I won't. So, so the, 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 uh, my intention this morning at the beginning of these um, seven weeks is really to go back to the, the basics and the fundamental teaching, and it's completely related to a lot of the uh, discussion that we've just had. And it's to go back to the teaching of the Four Truths, often called the Four Noble Truths, which are, uh, which comprise a teaching about the reality of suffering and the possibility of freedom and transforming suffering. And it's right at the heart of the teachings of the Buddha and the practice that we do. The four truths are first, that there is suffering, and I'll say more about what that term means, that there's a kind of um, off-balance quality at times to our lives where we where we are reactive and we, we suffer in some way. Secondly, that there's a fundamental cause to why suffering occurs. Thirdly, that some kind of peace or freedom is possible. And fourth, that there's a practical way to um, work with the conditions of life and work with suffering to bring about that quality of peace, understanding the transformation of suffering. So we could say that the four truths are suffering and its cause and freedom and its cause. And it's it seems appropriate to be talking about this theme today uh, because this month is really about, so many of the um, holidays and memorials are really about this quality of um, finding freedom, finding a kind of uh, rebirth from times of suffering. And I think it must be because of the way that the spring, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, is a time of rebirth. It's a time when we come out of the cold or the rainy. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> uh, and we we move towards this glorious outpouring of creative, fresh, beautiful energy That's that, is, that we call the spring, at least, in the, again, in this hemisphere. And so we can look to the the different holidays, we can look to um, Passover in the Jewish tradition, which is really a holiday about suffering and liberation. And Easter is a holiday that could be said to be about suffering and going beyond suffering, kind of the being born from the deadness of suffering. And I also know that yesterday was the... Um, Holocaust, Memorial Day. So this time is very, um, I think, appropriate for for looking at this very basic teaching. And it's right at the center of Buddhist tradition. And this is where my story about Silver City comes in. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't necessarily think that Silver City, New Mexico, which is in southwest New Mexico, is deeply connected with the core of Buddhist tradition. (laughs) So here's my story. Uh, A few years ago, I was invited by uh, several friends, and I was invited along with my friend uh, Diana Winston, who also teaches here, and we were invited to go to the Silver City, New Mexico area because uh, there was a community being developed that would connect Buddhist practice with working with the elderly and and working with death and dying. They were beginning a community, and they wanted us to come as observers and kind of consultants, basically as friends, and it was a good reason to go to New Mexico, which and I had never been to Silver City. So we went, and there was a several-day sort of community formation discussion happening. And in the first day, it seemed as if there were some conflicts. And people were not always in agreement, and they told us, you came as observers, we want you to be facilitators. So so we did for, for a few days. And one of the difficulties or conflicts that was appearing was that people came from different traditions in Buddhism. And in fact, at least one person didn't feel deeply connected with Buddhist tradition. And there seemed to be questions of should we what should be our common basis? What should we what principles should guide us? And people contended with different points of view from different approaches, different traditions, different Buddhist traditions. And it kind of went round and round, and people were, well, we don't want just the views of the people who are the main organizers just to dominate, so what, how, do we, how do we work with the situation? And so over time, people came to say, well, look, we all can agree on this teaching about the nature of suffering, the causes of suffering, and the possibility of freedom. And so indeed, that became the unifying framework for understanding what they were doing. And within that framework, uh, different perspectives could find a place. Thank you, Silver City. (laughs) (laughs) So, So this teaching is fundamental to all Variants of Buddhism, and it's also the first teaching that the Buddha gave. That he, as many of you know the story, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, had encountered suffering in a raw way at a certain point when he was 29 years old. That he had, in a way, perhaps like some of us, been quite sheltered and protected. And in fact, his, um, some of you know his, his um, parents had heard a prophecy that he would either be a great ruler or a great spiritual teacher, and they definitely preferred him to be a great ruler. <laughs> and so they said, well, we'll have to protect him from any of the negative aspects of life in order so that he doesn't get interested in spirituality. <laughs> I guess, I guess, I don't know if that, that connection exists, but uh, for some of us it did. For some of us actually uh, encountering suffering and trying to finding a way to make it workable was something that brought us to meditation or to spiritual practice. And so perhaps the Buddhist parents had some keen insights there. In any case, they tried to uh, protect him by having there be no signs of illness or death, or uh, poverty, anywhere near him. A little bit like suburban America. <laughs> in more ways than one, right? <laughs> you know that, uh, you, know, keep, uh, you know, keep the sick people in the hospitals, the sick and dying people in the hospitals, the poor people out of sight, and so forth. So it's a, there are some parallels. and And so the... Um, One day it said, the Buddha, being a rebellious 29-year-old, I don't know if that was delayed adolescence or or what, but uh, he went outside the walls of the um, palace, and it said that on four successive days he encountered a person who was sick, a person who was dying, a corpse, and then lastly a wandering mendicant or yogi. And, as it were, his bubble was pierced. And so he set off to try to find how can this reality of suffering be possible along with some kind of understanding, peace, and release. And so we can see that when, when he comes back and expresses his first teaching some six years later, in a way he's going right back to that starting point and saying, here's a way of making sense of what was such a um, precipitous or difficult experience that took me out of my sheltered situation where I couldn't stay there because I had to go deeper. And so he went on this six-year pursuit. And during that time, he tried all sorts of methods. In a way, he had uh, access to the great teachers of his time and the great practices of his time. And eventually, he tried many practices. Some of you know that he, he, he explored all the altered states of that time. And he actually said, yes, I can go into very profound states of ecstasy but they don't really respond to that original question. Because, you know, here it is, I come back, I don't know if he said it like this, but he says, I'm still me. You know, and I still have these issues. Again, that wasn't his language, but we might, we might talk like that. You know, I still I have had these beautiful experiences, but the transformation of suffering is not complete. And so he tried all sorts of things. He tried extreme asceticism, where he ate very little, where he became almost like a skeleton. He did that continually, and he had to question whether that was appropriate as well. And there's this powerful story where shortly before his actual full awakening, he was, had been very ascetic, and he was sitting on the banks of a river, and a young woman who was a milkmaid came and offered him what was some porridge, basically um, some food, and this was uh, something that he normally didn 't do and but some intuition in him led him to accept the gift of the porridge, and he had some insight that to really go most deeply, I need my body to be strong and he took He took the gift of the porridge and gained further strength. And it was a very short time later that he actually had this full awakening. And um, My mentor, John Travis, uh, had an insight a few years ago, during a trip to India, that this could be interpreted as representing a kind of balancing of masculine and feminine energies, that when that balance occurred, the awakening occurred shortly thereafter. That, in a way, this uh, kind of starving of the body, this heroic spiritual um, activity could be interpreted as a, as a masculine, so-called, mode. That there was some way that he was being hyper-heroic and he was finding it didn't work or it only worked to a certain extent. And it's when he sort of accepted the gift of the earth, of the woman, that there was a kind of balancing of those energies. I, I like that interpretation a lot. And a short time later, he came to awakening. He came to, in his view, to see through all the suffering that he had not been able to see through earlier. And at that point, he didn't know what to do. And, and this, uh, he was in this state where he said, it's so simple, you know, even though it's taken me six years of extreme effort The insight I've come to is that there is suffering, but the cause of suffering is in a kind of compulsive holding on or pushing away, a kind of what we sometimes call clinging or attachment, that we somehow hold on and that we can have freedom by letting go of that um, compulsive clinging or pushing away. And that's all there is to it. Who's going to listen? It's too simple. And so he said, I won't teach. No one will listen to me. They'll think I'm being another one of these simplistic spiritual types. And so he stayed just on his own for many, many weeks. And then it said that the king of the gods, Brahma, came down and was interested in the Buddha teaching. The Buddha simply means one who is awake. So he actually wasn't called the Buddha at that point. He was still Siddhartha Gautama. And so um, Brahma came down and said, there are some with but little dust over their eyes. They will understand. Please open up the doors to the deathless, Brahma said. The deathless being um, another name for the sacred, for nirvana or nibbana and there was something in siddhartha gotama which responded and he says yes i will do that and so he started walking in the area where he had lived and he said i will i will teach at that point he came upon someone in the road and this is one of these wonderful authentic stories where you just this you could imagine this radiant being apparently you know full of you know the the breakthrough and apparently looking not even necessarily human. You know, many people who would ask him, Are you a human being? Are you a god? And so here's this radiant being he comes across just walking down the road. He comes the first person he comes across basically just says hello and keeps on going. And we never hear from that person again. I, I like that story. It's you know it has the ring of authenticity. <laughs> you, know, you just met someone, the other person is maybe obsessed with some problem. It just <laughs> Had no connection whatsoever with the Buddha, and so then later, in a little while, he meets his um, four former associates, who at this by this time had thought that the Buddha's taking of the porridge was um, really going against what they had agreed upon, and they were basically had a. Mm, had a lot of opinions that the Buddha had, was what the uh, Southern Baptists call a backslider. That that this um, this former ascetic was uh, really not doing it right, and so they, when they first saw him, were you know still had all their views and opinions, but there was something about his presence which won them over, and so he talked to them, and his first teaching was the teaching of these four truths. That's, that, was, that was what he came to want to speak about. So I'll say a little bit more about each of those four truths and try to do so in a way which points to how we can work with them in a practical way in daily life. So that um, my hope is, and we have, a, we have the handout which can give some resources, and my hope, if you, if you wish, we can um, continue next week and do some... Take homework, not homework, but take well, take home practice. That's what we call it. Not homework. Homework takes us into suffering. We don't. <laughs> 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 we don't need, need more of that. So, so if you if you feel inclined, and we'll check at the end, if you'd like to work with these teachings and try to say, okay, how does how do I find this in the next week in my practice? Then we can come back and compare notes and go deeper. Because I think that the the work that we do on these Wednesday mornings, in my experience, is deepened when we have some things we can look at during the week and then come back and share and compare notes. So the four truths, how do we, how do we understand them? Interestingly, the Buddha took the model of the four truths, that there's, that there's suffering, a cause to the suffering, a way out of the suffering the possibility of peace, and then, and then a practical way to do it. He took that model from the medical models of his time. And if you think about it, it's a very it's a very, um, very straightforward analytical model, which would be something like this. There's a problem, there's the cause to the problem, there's a solution, and there's the way to get to the solution. That's really the model of the four truths. And interestingly, um, one of the great teachers in Thailand in the 20th century, Achan Buddha Dasa, um, he applied this model to all sorts of issues. He said, we can take the model of the four truths, we can apply it to personal issues, we can apply it to interpersonal issues, we can apply it to social issues. We can see what's the problem, what's the nature of the suffering, what are the causes, is there a solution? and how do we get there? And so it's a very, very basic model that is very practical and very straightforward. The first truth is that there is some kind of dukkha or suffering. The the word in the Pali language, as many of you know, is dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A. And to use the English word suffering, may lead to some misunderstandings, because the word in the Pali language is made up of two roots, "duke" and ka, and ka actually is the word related to a wheel, and, and duk means something like bad, so it'd be like, to be suffering is to have bad wheels, <laughs> so to speak. And it pointed to what a bad wheel was a wheel that somehow was off center and doesn't doesn't go around rightly and interestingly, the word for happiness is sukha," which means more or less good wheel, so if you're happy, you can think, "Oh, I have a good wheel today." Um, so what this points to is is that Dukkha, or what's translated by suffering, is really more a kind of off-centeredness, a quality of unsatisfactoriness. And I find it helpful to distinguish, if we use the word suffering, to make some kind of distinction between pain and suffering. Because the first truth is not that we have pain Necessarily, but that we have suffering. So, if we think of pain as the presence of the of unpleasant um, experiences, could be a pain in the knee, pain in the shoulder, sadness, some quality of experience that we find unpleasant. In the teachings of the Buddha, pain is a given in life, but our reaction. To the pain is not a given, and so one of the core teachings, which I like to give a lot, which really is powerful for me, makes that distinction clearer. It's the it's the teaching called the teaching of the two arrows. And when I first heard this teaching, it um, was electric for me. It's just oh my gosh, what an amazing teaching! So maybe you'll have that experience if you haven't heard it before, but maybe not. <laughs> And so the the teaching is that all of us are as if we were shot by an arrow. And that's the arrow of pain. And so we all have a certain amount of physical pain in our lives. We have a certain amount of emotional pain. We sometimes feel uh, unfairly or unjustly treated. A lot of things happen that are part of the givens of life. You know, we have soft, vulnerable bodies that, are, that can be injured and we all eventually die. All of, all of these experiences tend to be painful. The teaching about suffering is not a teaching that there is pain but it's, it's saying that what we often do because of the presence of the first arrow we shoot a second arrow in a misguided attempt to try to get rid of the first arrow, that we shoot a second arrow at ourselves or others, and that's the arrow of reacting to the first arrow. We react to pain. We react to sadness. We react to a difficult interaction with a friend by a proliferation of reactions in the body, in the mind, and in the heart. I think we We know that that's very common, you know, that we have a difficult interaction with a friend or a partner, and the difficult interaction in itself can take 30 seconds. The proliferation can take 20 years, (laughs) sometimes, right? Or, Or can often take an hour, three hours, three days, and we can feel ourselves caught in knots because of our reactions to the original stimulus. In a similar way, I've heard many doctors say that most of what patients experience as actual uh, pain is not the original stimulus but the reaction, the tensing of the body to the original stimulus. And so we could say that that tensing is the second arrow. The actual stimulus is the first arrow. What the, What is being pointed to when the Buddha talks about dukkha is the second arrow. And so we often use the word reactivity to point to that quality of reacting around a stimulus. And what's interesting about this teaching is that in some way we react not just because of unpleasant experiences, but also because of pleasant experiences. So the Buddha will say that there's suffering and that the cause of suffering is in a kind of compulsive grasping after what's pleasant. But we could also say that any time that we're reactive, and we can be reactive when we have something nice happen, and we try to keep it going in some compulsive way, just as if we try to compulsively get rid of it, you know, that we have a beautiful experience and we grab hold of it and try to keep grabbing. In a way, the Buddha is saying that's also suffering, which is interesting insight, isn't it? Because it's not. We usually think of suffering as only to do with the unpleasant, but the Buddha is saying basically that our, as it were, our root nature is that of peace. And when we grab hold of the pleasant or push away the unpleasant, we depart from that peace. And so it's actually a pretty subtle and powerful teaching. Most of us, however, are awakened to that quality of reactivity by the unpleasant. Most of us, when we... um, get attached to something very positive, we don't think of it as suffering, do we? <laughs> we think of it as what? Uh, controlling? Huh? Controlling. We think of it as, as doing what I want to do. Um. <laughs> or, or con- Yeah, controlling, controlling life, controlling <laughs> something when we... But if, you look, if we look closely, we can actually see that in the moment, you know, just think of, um, um, I don't know, eating something very wonderful... You know, eating a strawberry. If we can just be with the sensation of the strawberry, it can be very pleasant. When we start to reach for another strawberry before we've even tasted the first one, that's the grabbing hold. And we can actually see that it's not a state of a deeper well-being, that it's much more peaceful just to taste the strawberry. right? And yet we, and yet we keep doing that. And so this first teaching is a radical one. It's saying saying that any time that there's reactivity to what's happening, there's a kind of suffering there. And in terms of our practice, we're really invited to look into when we feel that reactivity. The prognosis, as it were, is that we are conditioning, is that any time we have a pleasant experience, we try to grab hold of it, and any time we have an unpleasant experience, we try to push it away. That's our conditioning. And so when we sit in meditation, we get a chance to look more carefully at that conditioning. We get a chance to look and actually say, what do I do with pleasant experiences? Do I have a beautiful, ecstatic experience? Do I try to grab hold of it? That's really why the Buddha said that having beautiful experiences can be important, but it's not really where we're going. You know, And so because where we're going is more that quality of peace which isn't dependent on that particular state being there to, to give the peace. And so what we do in our practice is we investigate. We sit in meditation and we notice, especially when we begin, okay, I'm sitting here, I have a shoulder pain, I have some sense that it's not doing any harm, but I still have it. And I watch my mind saying, I don't like this. Let's get rid of this. When's the meditation over? Person up there ringing the bell is off in some private ecstasy and is not attending to the clock. <laughs> uh, and so on. right? So we, and, and we get into that kind of mild, ordinary, everyday suffering, or dukkha. And so we investigate that. We watch when we meditate whether we do this just in daily life or mindfulness during a retreat, we learn how to be present and say, okay, I feel um, angry. Can I just be present with the anger and see what that's like rather than find my mind just reacting and going with all these stories and tensing my body and so forth? Can I just be present and see what it's about? So the first truth, the invitation is, to understand and to go more deeply into the nature of that reactivity. And that's what we're invited to do. And it's, so it's, it's, and again, it's very straightforward, but in a way it's radical, because so often when we meditate, we almost unconsciously just say, okay, let me just relax, feel relaxation, feel peace. But the intention of our practice is actually to go more deeply Relaxation can help, but the aim really is to see what's there and particularly to notice when we're being reactive, when we are with the first arrow and start shooting the second arrow. Again, we can do that individually, just with our own bodies. We can do it interpersonally. We can do it as a society. You know, we can, and, and you know, unfortunately... We do it quite a lot as a society. That you, know, you could interpret 9-11 as the opportunity to look really deeply at grief and pain and sadness without necessarily going right to shooting the second arrow. And that didn't happen. It happened maybe with some people. And there was a beautiful time when there was this great outpouring of um, empathy and it <clears throat> didn't last that long. And we could interpret that as the conditioning... Manifesting at the level of the whole society, and it 's very strong you know and and that 's why we, we could look to uh, people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King as teaching something very similar to this model of the Four Truths by saying that when we have pain as a people, you know when we are oppressed as Indians colonized by England or as African-Americans who are the target of racism, the the approach of nonviolence is to say what we find deeply healing and transformative is to, because of our pain, not, as it were, to pass on the pain to others, but rather to say, I will work with this pain and I will um, act in a way that doesn't cause pain for others because I have had pain. And that's exactly the same approach on this larger scale. And so we're invited in our practice to look carefully at when we uh, are suffering, when there's dukkha. Not very easy, right? Challenging. That's why we need the um, container of meditation and the support to be able to do this. You know, how many of us would sit at home with a knee pain and just say, let me watch my conditioning? Well, maybe some of us would after a while, but if we hadn't had any meditation instruction, most of us would just give in to the conditioning. But when we sit here, we could do that. Not that this is all that meditation does, you know, but it's, it's a significant part of it. The second truth is then to look carefully and to see what causes that sense of imbalance or unsatisfactoriness. And the finding of the Buddha, which he urges us to look for ourselves and to see if this is true, his finding, at least, is that the root cause of um, suffering is some kind of compulsive and even unconscious grasping after her pushing away. Again, <clears throat> grasping after the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant. And so we're invited to really look in our own experience and to see, is that the case? So in terms of everyday life practice, we can look. When we find ourselves um, feeling off-balance or suffering, we can say, let me be with this. Let me see what this is about. And, And usually, first, we have to do that. After a while of being with it, we can ask the question, is there some kind of compulsive grasping or pushing away? My first meditation teacher was Joseph Goldstein and early on he gave me a practice which I uh, found very, very fruitful. He said, do this. When you notice that there's suffering, see if you can see where the grasping or pushing away is. And the way he phrased it to me was, if there's suffering, where's the attachment? You know, If, if, I, if I find myself suffering, can I look to see where there's some, something... Compulsive or and again it 's often unconscious. it comes out of our conditioning. A lot of it may come out of the fact that um, sometime in the past we may have had you know let's say we um, had some difficult experience. typically, um, what can happen is we can have difficult experiences in the past, especially when we 're children, and we can have some kind of painful experience, and we start to wall it off because we don't want to get near that. And so, the whole model of um, psychological work or psychotherapeutic work is to see, is to have us begin to see the extent to which, because of past pain, we are reacting in certain ways that may have been appropriate when we were young, but it's not appropriate 30 years later or 40 years later. And so, we gradually learn how to see, oh, I'm compulsively, um, I'm compulsively afraid of dogs, because when I was six years old, this is actually a true story. <laughs> when I was six years old, I had a really difficult encounter with the neighborhood dog, and I just started to, you know, get really scared of dogs. And now, when there's a dog, I just stay away. And not that you know, working with one's feelings about dogs is the main subject of meditation or psychotherapy, but I think it can give you the sense because we can see how we do that with other things as well. And so part of what we do is we try to say, okay, if there's suffering, where am I being compulsive? Where am I grasping? Where am I... um, You know, if I'm... um," We can do that with an interpersonal interaction. We can do that sitting in a meeting. If we feel ourselves suffering, we can ask, why am I suffering? Well, maybe it's because I have this strong attachment to this agenda happening at the meeting. And it's helpful to know that. It doesn't mean we don't still think the agenda is a good agenda, but we can look and see the, to what extent we're suffering. And so that's, that's an exercise which you might find helpful to ask that question. If I'm suffering, is there some kind of attachment? Is there some way that I'm compulsively trying to make something happen or trying to push something away? And we can do that. We can look in that way. Say, let, me, let me just, if, if I can, let me just finish up and then we can, we'll have the questions in a moment. Okay. So that's a, that's a practice that we can do. We can also be with times when we feel reactive and just stay with it and see if we notice some way that we're being compulsive in some way. You know, with a friend, with ourselves, and so forth. And again, we can notice how we do that. You know, we may do that with um, partners, with work situations, where we kind of almost unconsciously say, well, this is the way it has to be. We may not even know that, right? And yet then we suddenly, it's not happening that way, and we find ourselves miserable. Hmm, what's that about? So it's a great practice, just when we notice our self-suffering, just to hang out with it and say, what's going on? And just to stay with it and look. And this is not easy, right? This is not easy practice. The third truth is that some kind of peace, some kind of deep peace is possible. And as we practice more, we begin to see that we can, we can be present with what's difficult or painful without trying to push it away. We can do that more readily. We can be with um, what's pleasant without trying to grab hold of it. And we can sometimes just go right into something that's difficult without having it proliferate for another three days. So, to give some examples, um, some, when I was first becoming a teacher, you know, I've been doing teaching for maybe 20 years, and I noticed when I was first becoming a teacher, I would sometimes think, I didn't do very good teaching. And I would start to get really upset with myself and i basically get in a funk for three or four days and, and really be... Um, and it was all kind of mental, emotional. I didn't really actually touch the, whatever pain there was, but I would just go into a funk. Most funks are dukkha. <laughs> 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 and over time, particularly with meditative help, I began to be able, even when I thought, okay... You know, that wasn't good teaching. And I would I would be able to say, let me feel what that's like. And I'd be able to touch it sometimes and just say, oh, I'm sad. I didn't have enough time to prepare well. And I'd be with the sadness or the pain and the proliferation wouldn't happen in the same way because I was willing to be with what was unpleasant. So, so much of our lives, we actually proliferate not because... Of the pain, but especially because of our fear of the pain, of our conditioning, and so one of the great secrets of practice is that when we actually can be present with uh, what's difficult, it's often way less difficult than we think. You know that we—if I could be, you know—you might say that for 20 years, maybe that uh, kind of that fear of feeling whatever I was feeling made me proliferate ideas and emotions, but when I could actually be in touch with it, it was more like what a child experiences, like a three-year-old or four-year-old just experiences intensely something for a few moments, but then just moves on. And that's, that's I think, what our practice helps us to do. And so the Dalai Lama says, you know, I came from this um, really irritable part of Tibet. <laughs> you know, this isn't in the public image of the Dalai Lama, but he says, you know, I came from a part of Tibet where people are known to be irritable and angry. And I was like that too. And I still am sometimes angry. But when I was 15 years old, I would get angry for three hours and now it's five minutes. Because he can kind of feel what it's like and not get so caught and hooked. And so this third truth is pointing to the possibility that there is that there is a peace that's possible in our minds and hearts, the deepest expression of this is nirvana or nibbana or the sacred. And in a way we partake of that through awareness, that it's not necessarily some far-off spiritual realm, but that we we can know that quality of peace every moment when when we let go, when we release that compulsive grasping we can know that quality of peace. And so one of the invitations for our daily practice is to see if we can notice moments when we're compulsively pulling, grabbing, or pushing away. And what what does it feel like when we release that? When we're perhaps at a meeting and we we say, I'm really getting torn out of shape because I really so much wanted to have that happen. It's not happening. And can I... Um, can I release that tension, and just say, it doesn't look like this is going to happen. Mm. You know, and there may be feelings there, but there's some. Can there be? Can we explore what it is to release that compulsive quality? That's the quality of peace, which is talked about in the third truth. And then the the fourth truth is this very practical way to bring about the transformation, to bring about this transformation from the compulsive, compulsively driven suffering to the quality of, of peace and understanding and appropriate response. And so the fourth truth is said to be this practical path of transformation, which is called, in Buddhist language, the Eightfold Path, which has to do with working on the qualities of understanding. And understanding typically is... Can I understand these truths and the basic psychology of of how suffering arises? Um, clarity of intention, the second. Then three qualities which have to do with action in the world. Um, having appropriate livelihood is said to be a very important part of the path. Working with our speech, working with our the way we act in the world. And then lastly, three aspects having to do with. Meditation, developing mindfulness, developing the effort to be aware, and then having some quality of concentration that all together and we might we might add others to this path. I have some friends who said eight, eight steps are not enough we need nowadays we need a noble fourteen uh, fold path <laughs> and and I, I, I could talk about those another time, but you know, he said, well you know we 've got to have good education as well you know all the... You know, we have to have, um, you know, good economic arrangements, and so forth. So he wanted to expand the, these uh, this, this path. But I think you get the point that what this is basically saying, and it's, for many of us, it's a great relief to hear, is that suffering is workable, and the fact that our lives are workable. And that was for me when I first heard these teachings. It it. It um, first of all it takes um, suffering, this reactivity. It takes it out of the frame of just being normal, the way we all act together, and that's the end of the story. And says, no, this is a problem, that we're reacting in this way, and that it's workable and transformable. In many ways, this is a um, it's a breakthrough to say that. It says that human life is that it's possible to come to deep levels of peace and understanding through a very practical approach that transforms our usual conditioning of shooting the second arrow, essentially. It's saying that that's really workable, and yet it's not easy, and we need to work together as a community, support each other, find ways to make this real in daily life, and to to explore how that works. And so it's, for many of us, it's a relief because many of us were, were taught, don't get anywhere near suffering, just try to get rid of it. That's how we should live. And what's being said here is that that in itself can lead to further suffering, that that in itself can be part of the problem. So i will stop here and invite your um, questions or reflections. Thank you. Please. I was thinking it gets a little mushy in there because um, I understand the suffering and, the, and then the understanding of suffering. So often it works very well in my life that I go
1: ahead and feel it,
0: like and I'm aware of it. I'm, I'm, I'm to this or I'm pushing. Right yeah. Or and then sometimes I'm there and I can't find it. You know? Yeah. So then, of course, I get the suffering because I can't find it. You can't find the, the cause? The cause. Yeah. 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 And there's great suffering going on with humanity and, yeah. and the earth and what's happening. And I think sometimes it's that, but I'm feeling so deeply, yeah. and I can't really grab onto it. And I think, again, I think my suffering is then magnified because I want to find it. Yeah, and get real. yeah. Did everyone hear that? No. No. It's, she's saying in some way that sometimes it's hard to find the cause of suffering. We can know that we're feeling suffering but we don't really have a sense of what's causing it. And especially sometimes when we may be picking up on the, um, you know, the pain of the world, that it's hard to know um, the cause. And I think that's, um, that's the way it is sometimes, that um, in terms of practice, what I, what I have found and many people find is that it's hard enough just to be with what's uh, difficult, right? Right? It's hard enough just to be with um, where there's un- unpleasant thought or emotion or bodily sensations. It's hard enough just to do that. And sometimes we have to be present with that for a while before we really know what the causes are. So it's not so much to um, you know, demand, I should know the cause of this right away. Sometimes we have to sit with it, and it's, I think, the sitting with it uh, can sometimes uh, lead us to know what the cause is. We can also sometimes know by reflection, you know, by asking what the cause is, and that's that's the practice that I described. That I had, that I had done a lot, where I actually would just ask, okay, what's, what is, you know, is there some attachment there? And sometimes I would know it, but yeah, sometimes it's hard to know, and sometimes we sit with it. Please. Um, I know this is simplistic, but yeah. um. Do you have a general definition of suffering? Yeah. Um, I was connecting it with that quality of being reactive and um, even compulsive in relation to what's present. So so I so it's a it's a different, a little bit different connotation than we sometimes have in English, where we sometimes say suffering means simply the presence of the unpleasant. And so if we think of that distinction between the two arrows, and it may be helpful to make a distinction between pain and suffering, although some people find that pain is not a neutral term either, right? That we can say, okay, I have pain, I have unpleasant things happening, but am I reacting? And it's that quality of reacting, that shooting the second arrow, that I'm labeling suffering. So I'm giving a somewhat precise definition here which is a little bit different than ordinary English so the suffering in a way would be the um, almost like the compulsive resistance to what is present be the inability to be with what's present that would be a definition of suffering so what if somebody's in let's say severe pain yeah and once in a while just wants to a break from it Yeah. they want to distract themselves yeah and just avoid it yeah is that okay is that yeah that's um yeah it's okay <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay i not mean, mean it that way i no. was <laughs> i wanted to give a quick answer but but i, I could say more um you know, it's a good it's a good all kinds question of levels of how we Yeah. have to cope with that, that's right. It's a good question, actually. It's a really, it's an important question because. Right, a day-long talk or something? No. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to be brief, but no, it's um, it's a good question because um, so much um, uh, you know we um. The presence of pain, uh, can often knock us out of balance, and they actually, then the you know the other side of that. It's interesting to ask. Do I also get knocked out of balance by the pleasant that that's an, another another question but the um, for most of us it's a matter of how can I skillfully um, keep developing and so for for a lot of us, the training is with the small levels of pain or the 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 ordinary, everyday, minor pains. That's where we can actually train. In a way, we train on the small stuff to get ready for the big stuff. That's one way to say it. Because the... And, and then it's also fine to say that there's some levels of pain which are, at a given moment, are just too much. And then, you know, so this isn't sort of asking us to do anything that's, uh, um, you know, just Impossible. But it's saying that we can train with what's small. We can, I can train with my um, my pain in my knee when I'm sitting, and I can begin to watch how I compulsively want that to go away, and I can learn that I can actually be with what's unpleasant without reacting. So we train with the small stuff, and I can train with you know, like the example I gave. I can. I can be with my sadness in the moment, it's just say, okay, let me feel what that's like, rather than reacting. And we train there, and then, you know, the really, really, really hard stuff we maybe are better at, but maybe even there are some times when we just say, um, it's too much. Because one way that I like to think of our practice is that we it's like we can think that there are three Zones. This is kind of this is, comes from learning theory that there are three zones. There's the pleasure zone, the discomfort zone, and the overwhelm zone. You know, and our learning here would occur in the discomfort zone when we're when it's kind of workable, but still not so comfortable, and not in the overwhelm zone. Generally, when we're overwhelmed, we can't really be aware, and we just want to try to change it. So the idea is that we try to make things workable so that we can actually keep learning. But we don't force ourselves to say, this really impossible thing is happening. I should be learning. I should be able to practice. In those situations, I think it's appropriate to um, do something else. And so that that's an important point, because we sometimes find ourselves in really, really hard situations where we it's really... Too hard to bring awareness to the situation. I think it's appropriate there to, you know, shift if it's you know something physical to, um, you know, use something that blocks the pain. So the whole thing is trying to make all this workable. It's not imposing unrealistic demands on ourselves. That's an important point. So thank you for the question. Maybe last question, and then yeah, please. Well, you
1: mentioned judgment earlier. Yeah. One of the things.
0: I wonder about a lot is when I'm sitting with some suffering and awareness yeah. of suffering is how quickly it can slip to That's right. judgment, which I guess is that reactive arrow. That's and right. We can talk about that and yeah. forgiveness. Yeah. And Thank you. Did everyone hear the question? So it's a it's a great question and it's really what we're being invited to do is really investigate what's there because and to see the extent to which when something unpleasant happens, we go right into that reactivity, and judgments are a major form. You know, the way we, if we think of the judgments as like, someone makes one sarcastic comment to me, and I just, you know, am thinking about it for the next uh, four hours. Right? Has that, that ever happened to anyone? <laughs> okay. okay, I'm not alone. <laughs> so, so we, we, we investigate that. We, we start to notice, and we, you know, as we do it more, and what, what we look at in the, that day-long on judgments is we try to see what are the tools that help me to work with this and we begin to see we begin to almost slow down the process so that we notice oh, that person said something can you imagine in your difficult interaction in slow motion like someone says something it's like, oh. and then but we don't realize that there's the uh oh, we just instantly go on the defensive right, and start judging the person and you know if we're an extrovert we say it, and if we're an introvert, we just slink away and feel bad. We kind of each have different styles, and one's not better than the other, but we we basically the proliferation starts, and what we do in our practice is we start studying that. we become experts on our own reactivity. Is that interesting for people yeah okay good you're we're not uh, we're we're ready for that because that, that's actually we start to when we one sign of maturity in practice is actually when we start to get interested in our own suffering and start to get interested in saying okay how is my mind working now? how What do I do when I get that sarcastic comment? What's there? And we start to be able to look at it and as we slow down the process we start to get really familiar with what we do and over time we, we actually can learn a different way of being. It doesn't mean at all that we're just passive and someone says something sarcastic to us and we just are like this... <laughs> passive, peaceful meditator. We can, we can... Because all of this doesn't mean that we're just passive, receptive, do what you want to me, I have meditative abilities, I will... I will. <laughs> it's, it's not really that, it's, it's that we but we we do the internal work so that if we're not so reactive then and this is true whether it's personal interpersonal or dealing with our government you know that we can do this work so that we're not so reactive and then when we're not reactive we can actually respond in a fuller and more balanced way that's the whole intention here it's to because when we're reactive we're just we're knocked around by events right we're knocked around by comments and we in some sense don't have much freedom when we can do that work and not be so reactive, then we actually can be responsive to situations in a much more powerful, grounded, and I think skillful way. So that's really the the long-term purpose here. So how many are interested in doing some take-home practice on this? Okay. So here's my suggestion that you work with that in the next week, we'll come back and compare notes, and I'll give a little more depth on some of what I didn't explore in terms of the um, in terms of these truths, and give a little more detail. And we can also compare notes, say what we found, and I think probably share uh, helpful practices. So, people ready for that? Okay. It means it means you have to actually increase the attention. In the next week, heaven forbid. heaven forbid. If you're if you're if you're intending to do that, raise your hand. Okay, that was a little bit manipulative, but <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but uh, hmm. not too much. <laughs> so, uh, so we'll compare notes and um, enjoy the exploration. This is because this is about our own freedom, isn't it? It's really about our freedom, so I invite um, invite your exploration for the next week, and I look forward to seeing what we find. Thank you very much. So may we dedicate the fruits of our morning to to our own transformation and the transformation of others. Thank you.